I'm Paul Levinson, and welcome to Light On, Light Through, episode 165. Why I think Twitter's banning of Trump was a very good idea, even though it violates the spirit of the First Amendment. Well, last week I wrote an essay in the conversation about that very question why I thought Twitter did the right thing in banning Trump, even though I don't like to see corporations or anyone violate the spirit of the First Amendment by banning someone or censoring anything. And a few days after that essay was published, I was invited to do an interview, which I did this morning, on WORT-FM in Wisconsin with Brian Standing on his 8 o'clock Buzz show. So I thought his interview of me went very well, and I'm going to play it for you right now. The Light on Light Through podcast. On January 8th, Twitter announced that it was permanently suspending Donald J. Trump's Twitter account due to the risk of, quote, further incitement of violence. The decision by the private corporation was notable, first because Trump was the sitting president of the United States at the time, but also because at real Donald Trump was the sixth most followed account on Twitter with over 88 million followers. Many celebrated Twitter's ban on the former president, but civil liberties advocates have warned that the precedent might be used to silence other voices as well. Paul Levinson is a professor of media and communication studies at Fordham University. He has written in the past in opposition to government regulation of big tech companies. He joins us now by phone. Welcome to the 8 o'clock buzz. Happy to be here. Well, first of all, let's let's start with the, the big question. Do you think Twitter was justified in banning Donald Trump from its service? Yes, I do, and I don't say that lightly, because I don't like to see any censorship anywhere. It was not a violation of the First Amendment, because, of course, Twitter is not the government. They're entitled to do whatever they want to do with their operation. But it violates what I call the spirit of the First Amendment. Anytime any organization, whether it's a private university that says a student demonstration can't take place or CBS bleeps uh, the, the Grammys because they don't like the words that a hip-hop artist is singing, Anytime anything like that happens, including a social medium throwing someone off the system, anyone, whether it's Donald Trump or just a totally unknown person, that's not a good thing in general because it interferes with the public's right to know in one way or another. But I think this was a very special case. I think the the lies that Donald Trump continually told on Twitter, it, it really became a sort of tinder with a small t for the explosion that happened with the attack on the Capitol. That was ignited when Trump literally told those people at the demonstration, I want you to fight for me over and over again. And ultimately, loss of life and endangering human life is a value that I think is more important than even freedom of expression. You know, if you're dead, 
you communicate at all. Uh, if the freedom of expression is curtailed for a period of time and you're still alive, you can live another day to communicate. So when those two values come into conflict, I tend to side with someone doing something to limit the communication. In this case, an incitement for a, an attack on the Capitol that did result in a loss of human life, not to mention it endangered the lives of everyone from the Vice President, the Speaker of the House, the, the Senators and Representatives that were gathered there to count the electoral votes, certify them. Well, I mean, that was just such an outrageous and dangerous development that I think Twitter was right to basically make sure that at least its system couldn't be used by the president again to do God knows what damage. So that incitement of violence is that that's the the line that you're you're drawing here as to when when that line's crossed then some sort of censorship in this case private censorship you think you think is justified how bright is that line however i mean let me give you another example in uh last summer there were a number of black lives matter protests that for example blocked streets and an argument was made well what happens if an ambulance needs to get through are you creating a situation that might uh cause someone's harm or death is that would that be an appropriate uh, situation where a private media company or even the government could say you can't advocate for that? You have to look at each situation. The First Amendment guarantees the right of citizens to peaceably assemble, and everything really hinges on that word peace. So if you have a demonstration in the street that's inconveniencing people, but it's nonviolent, then I think the government has no right to stop it. But if you're talking about a situation where the ambulance is on its way and you have a group of people who are literally blocking the route of the ambulance and a life or lives are at stake, then, yeah, in that case, I think the right to demonstrate does need to be curtailed. Of course, the problem is it's difficult in an abstract situation to make a generalization. So in, in, in those kinds of cases, we're dependent on the police to make an accurate judgment. Is the demonstration threatening anyone's life? Is it getting in the way of an ambulance? So, for example, a demonstration right in front of a hospital that blocks the way that an ambulance would get into the hospital and the patient inside the ambulance could be quickly gotten into the hospital. Well, I mean, in that kind of situation, yeah, that shouldn't be allowed. But just on some city street somewhere where the ambulance could easily go around another way, I would say that's a different situation. Now, a big part of the distinction we're making here is between what the government does and what private entities do. And you talk about a literal violation of the First Amendment versus a spirit of the First Amendment. What obligation do private companies like Twitter have to allow free speech at all? They don't have any legal obligation. I think they have an ethical, a moral obligation and, you know, I'm a professor, and so if I'm teaching a class and a student has a question, and, you know, the student might not have phrased the question in the best possible way, I might want to 
continue my lecture. I don't want to be interrupted by a question. All kinds of possible situations. But I think as a professor, I'm morally obligated to give the student a chance to ask a question. If I don't allow the student to ask the question, I'm not breaking any law. Clearly, professors have that power. But I don't think it should be exercised, except very rarely if there's an absolutely crucial point I'm in the middle of making and a student raises his or her hand and I'll say, okay, I'll get to your question in a couple of minutes. And then I always make sure that I do come back to the question. So um, what what does a moral obligation mean when you're talking about a corporation like Twitter or Facebook? Well, that's a good question, because what what is the raison d'etre of Twitter or Facebook? Uh, ultimately, most people would say, well, you know, they are corporations. Uh, they, they need to make money. That's why they have advertising on those systems. But I also do think in both cases, and in the case of, of most social media, they were created in a tradition of doing something good for the world, making it a better place, making it easier for people to express their opinions. You know, one of the amazing things about Twitter, which we sometimes forget, is that before Twitter, if you, John or Joan Q. Citizen, had an opinion, had a point of view, yeah, you could tell it to members of your family, you could tell it to your friends, you could mention it to people in your workplace, but those were fairly limited situations. Now anyone can go on Twitter, say whatever they please, and potentially the whole world, certainly millions of people, can get that opinion and think it's an atrocious opinion or a brilliant opinion. I think that's a step forward in terms of the human evolution, moving to a situation where everyone has an opportunity to get her or his opinion. And so I think that is a morally good thing. I think it's good for democracy. I think it's good for human life. You know, if you think about the problems that we face, I mean, certainly now with the pandemic and unemployment, we've never been in a situation quite like this, where literally the whole world is under siege, not because we're at war with each other, but just because of these natural developments. And I think in a situation like that, systems like Twitter and Facebook are enormously valuable because they enable people to get information much more quickly. Of course, there are problems. If the information consists of lies, if it misleads people, and to get back to what we were saying before, for such people, then there has to be some control over that. But by and large, I think Twitter's very existence is something that helps humanity. Now, um, you've written in the past of, uh, against government regulation of big tech companies. Uh, ACLU senior legislative counsel Kate Ryan warned that if Twitter can ban President Trump, what's to prevent it from banning less powerful users with whom it may disagree, such as Black Lives Matter or LGBTQ activists? Is there a role for the government to ensure equal access or equal time to such services? No, there's not a role. And the problem is the government has an enormous amount of power. And we saw this really dangerously and tragically in the Trump administration. 
you, you can send troops. You can send federal police forces. These are groups that are armed, and they can potentially kill uh, and certainly arrest people. And people can get thrown in jail. They can get thrown in prison. These are very dangerous powers. And I think that the founding fathers, the people who created the Constitution, wisely saw that they had to limit those powers. And they had to allow people to, again, peaceably demonstrate, to communicate as they saw fit. That's what the First Amendment is all about. And the problem about, in some way, limiting the power of Twitter is what organization are people going to call upon, expect to limit the power of Twitter? There's only one organization, the government. And we, thankfully, have just gotten beyond four years in which the president of this government was someone who was a very vengeful person, talked about dismantling Twitter and Facebook because they didn't like the fact that they didn't like that he didn't like that Twitter took down any of his posts even before he was banned. And that's sort of just a little taste of what could happen if the government is set loose to somehow regulate these media. Meanwhile, the public has an option if they don't like what Twitter or Facebook or any social medium is doing, and that's use another medium. You know, it's trivially easy to say, you know what, I'm not going to log on to Twitter at all. As a matter of fact, that's what a lot of Donald Trump supporters have done, and, they, and they've gone to other media. And, you know, one of the other sites, Parler, a much smaller site, is filled with Trump supporters. Amazon, as most people know, decided to deplatform them. I agree with Amazon doing that for the same reason why I agree with Twitter throwing Trump off its system. But that doesn't mean that Parler is dead. It can easily get another system as a host. Amazon, though a massive and powerful organization, obviously, is not the only game in town. And so the, the difference between government and corporate power is that consumers have control over corporate power. They can walk away. They can go to another source of power. The problem with government is if the police are trying to shut something down, if the police are trying to enforce some kind of law, you can't walk away from that. And that's why that power, I think, needs to be limited. Well, let's dig into that a little bit. I mean, in some cases such as, you know, there are some corporate entities such as Amazon or Google who, whose power in the Internet is so strong that any other alternative is going to relegate that message to second-class status. We also have the issue of net neutrality where you have the service providers and whether or not they're going to uh, allow access or uh, equal access to various different websites. Uh, for example... Uh, isn't there a role that the government should play to ensure not so much uh, censoring it themselves, but making sure that such an, uh, operations operate in the public interest and serve everybody fairly and equally? I would say the smaller the role is, the safer it is, the safer we are from government control doing something apropos of some of the things that Trump tried to do. But 
I wouldn't go so far as to say the government should play no role at all. So obviously there is already government limitation. You can't go out and advertise that a drug is going to make you feel better for whatever it is that the drug is advertised as doing if when you take the drug you suddenly get a heart attack and you're dead, right? I mean, that, that's a kind of false advertising that endangers human life. The, the, uh, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, would not allow that to happen. They would shut that, that down, and I would agree with that, even though it would be a kind of government censorship. And uh, as far as, you know, social media and other things are concerned, you know, many people know about the fact that what Facebook, other systems did too, but Facebook more than most other systems, what they would do is they would collect data on the interests of people who were on the system. What did they like? What did they share? Uh, and on Twitter, what did people like? What did they read? have in effect profiles of interests, including political interests, of their users. And then Facebook would sell them to advertisers. And that's an invasion of the privacy of the user, which was not completely clear to users. And I thought it was appropriate that the government stepped in and said to Facebook, you need to stop doing that. You can't just mine data without letting the user know that the data is being mined. So there are cases where I think the government should come in. But, again, very few, very limited. And as far as net neutrality is concerned, uh, I have to tell you, I always thought that was a red herring. And, uh, you know, a few years ago when Trump came into office and uh, – the Obama administration was moving towards net neutrality, uh, but the FCC decided, no, they weren't really going to pursue net neutrality, which you know, basically has the government enforcing that all the giants, you know, Amazon and Google and so forth, give everyone equal access. So there were a lot of people saying, oh, my God, this is going to be the end of you know, freedom in the United States. I'm not going to be able to log on to the system I want. And I said then... And it was just a few years ago, you know what? Nothing is going to happen even remotely like that. You'll be able to continue logging on to whatever system you like for as long as you like. You like. You're not going to suddenly be charged a huge amount of money because you're just one person rather than a huge corporation. And I'm glad to say, uh, as bad as the Trump administration was, that was not one of the problems. Nobody lost Internet access in the past four years. Uh, and that's because, again, that's not uh, something that any of these big systems wants. They don't want to make it more difficult for people to get onto their system. If they're guilty of anything, it's making their systems ever easier for people to log on to. So uh, I, I thought net neutrality, had, it was well motivated, but it was an unnecessary cause to champion. So getting back to the, the sort of corporate censorship issue, um, you know, there's been reports, for example, that Facebook has shut down uh, website or pages run by left wing organizations, not necessarily invoking the the uh, violation of, um, uh, you know, threat of, of human harm, for example, uh, or incitement of violence, but simply because they disagree with them. Um, 
what what is there any role for the government to play to tell Facebook no you can't do that or is are left wing organizations that Facebook doesn't like simply reduced to using a a different platform again it's dangerous to call the government to do something like that because if you think of Donald Trump's government it's a really small leap from telling Facebook don't uh, ban that to Trump saying, I want you, Facebook, uh, to not ban anyone who is pro-Trump and to ban everyone, throw everybody off the system who is anti-Trump. It's not too hard to envision something like that happening because I think it, it almost did. I think Facebook, again, to get back to the moral issue, would be seriously violating the spirit of the First Amendment if they banned an organization simply because Facebook didn't agree with the politics of the organization. Now, if if they ban a QAnon group, that's not because they don't agree, Facebook doesn't agree with the politics. It's because QAnon has lunatics there that believe that uh, JFK Jr. is still alive, that somehow Trump is going to continue as president, etc., etc. So I think Facebook did the right thing by banning them because they are spewing dangerous information, which, again, it was one of the mainsprings of the attack on the Capitol. But all and all, I think that the best remedy for Facebook doing something like that is for people to leave Facebook. Now, you might say, well, why would Facebook care? They have billions of users. They care. They're, they, they're, they're still in it for the money, for the advertising. They don't want thousands, tens of thousands, even millions of people to leave. And look, new systems start up all the time. Once upon a time, a long time ago, a lot of people don't remember this, but MySpace was the main social medium. And Facebook came along and within three or four years ate up MySpace's lunch. And, space, and then MySpace basically shriveled up. And now I think it's a small little system, doesn't have much impact or influence. Paul Levinson, professor of media and communication studies at Fordham University. Thank you so much for joining us on the 8 o'clock buzz. You're welcome. Bye-bye. The Light on Light Through podcast. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview. If you'd like to read the essay on which that interview is based, just do a Google search on The Conversation and my name, Paul Levinson, and it should come right up. And once again, the interview was conducted by Brian Standing on WORT. FM radio in Wisconsin, part of his 8 o'clock buzz show this morning. And I'll be back here soon with another episode of Light on, Light through. Could be political, could be a review of a brand new science fiction series, who knows. In the meantime, stay safe, stay well, and enjoy. AD. She ripped the paper in half, then ripped the halves, then ripped what was left again into bits and pieces of history that could have been. 
Sierra Waters had read once that, years ago, it was thought that men made love for the thrill, while women made love for the sense of connection it gave them. Curled up with a good book says, Sierra Waters is sexy as hell. You can find out more about The Plot to Save Socrates by Paul Levinson at theplottosavesocrates.com. about an ancient biotech war raging on in secret for centuries.